Well, uh, normally I try to start every message off with some type of hook or opener, but I want to do two things. Uh, number one, happy Memorial Day weekend, and so uh, thank you to all of those in this room, perhaps part of our church watching online who have served our country, uh, either in the past or are currently serving for helping us uh, just live in a place where we can even do stuff like this. And so let me be one of the first to say thank you so much for your service. The second thing that I want to do is actually take a quick moment to pause because there was another extremely tragic and evil event that happened in our country this past week in the state of Texas. And a majority of you, if not all of you, are very aware. And it's one of those things that sometimes it's like, what do we do? It didn't happen in our community per se, but we might either have connections there or the fact that, man, like these were kids going to school. These are, you know, 21 victims, teachers. Some of you are teachers. Some of you have students of that age. And just even the thought that this is continuing to happen is, is somewhat scary. And so one thing that we can do as the church and as Christians is to pray. And so I'm going to pray for us uh, just for a quick moment. I'm going to offer a brief moment of silence that I'm going to pray as we start our service this morning. And so uh, I'll start with a moment of silence and then I'll just head into a prayer. So would you all bow with me this morning? Father, we, 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 we come before you this morning, um, perhaps just like any other Sunday, but right now we know that there are families and there's an entire community who is yet again um, heartbroken of, of the evil and the sinful actions of another human being. It's difficult, God, because uh, it's this reoccurring trend, and as, and as Christians, I, I think it's it's this hard reality because we know why it happens, because we live in a sinful and broken world that does not make it okay. Well, at the same time, too, we know that you are a God of, of, of wrath and justice, that this breaks your heart because this is kids and teachers made in the image of God, that they are deeply loved and they were taken uh, unfairly uh, in this life. Lord, I can't, I can't even fathom, I don't even really have the words of, of what we can pray, but we know that there are churches, there are pastors, there are communities, families that are just at a loss right now. We pray that by the power of your spirit that you, you supersede in ways that, as your word tells us, to grant a peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, that, that every single person who was a victim in this, the murderer himself is also someone who was made in your image. Lord, we know the power of your gospel, the power of your truth and grace that overcomes, but, but right now, Lord, be with the churches the pastors, the neighbors, the schools, the administration of just how to properly extend love and compassion and care. Be with the counselors who are probably going to have their hands full for who knows how long to step into this situation. Lord, we offer this to you because we trust that you are good. Not that this situation was good, but that, Lord, you reign above it all and this is yet just another stark reminder of why you sent your son to die on the cross. Another stark reminder that eternity is a real thing. Another, another reminder for us all of the urgency, not just to live this life, but to, to pursue you with all that we can. Lord, may we continue to be in prayer 
for this situation, situation in Ukraine, the many situations going around in our world today. May it break our heart the way it breaks your heart. May it move us to to do things in our own community and backyard that we may need to do. May we be people not just of conviction, but also people of action. May we be people, though, first and foremost, of prayer and trust in you. We offer this to you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, would you join me in Acts chapter 2 this morning? If you have your Acts study journal, you can get out that as well as we continue on in this teaching series. You know, last week we started this, this uh, journey, 28 weeks, 28 chapters through the book of Acts. And where we're going to see today is we're going to be about 50 days after the day of Passover, which was the day in which Jesus was crucified. And at this moment, Jesus has told his apostles, his disciples, to go to the city of Jerusalem and wait for a gift, wait for my presence, wait for my Holy Spirit. And this is a day that is arguably the most important and fundamental day in the life of Christianity outside of the bookends of Jesus' life. Because the text we're going to read today is called the day of Pentecost, the day, so to speak, that the church, the Christian church was birthed and something happened some 2,000 years ago that turned these men who were cowards, these men who ran and hid when Jesus was taken away, when he was arrested, were, were hiding in a home, they were nowhere to be seen and then in an instant they become bold witnesses, not just in this moment but basically for the rest of their lives because of what happens on this day. And so Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost is where we find ourselves this morning. And what we kind of said last week as we read and study the book of Acts is that one of the things we cannot do is take a verse or a collection of verses, pull it out by itself, but we need to read it, not just in the context of perhaps the paragraph or the chapter, but the entire book of Acts. And that is certainly true of how chapter 2 begins with us this morning. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, you can follow along with me. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, there were all, they were all together in one place. They were in the upper room, about 125 of them at this point. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing, of a, uh, the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so here it is, is is that the Holy Spirit shows up as Jesus promised. He said, go, wait, I'm going to send you something that you need in order to fulfill my mission. And so we find out it's the day of Pentecost. Now, in the ancient Hebrew, the ancient uh, Jewish tradition, Pentecost, or sometimes referred to as the Feast of Weeks, was the second most important holiday, if you will, for them back then. It was the day 50 days after Passover, and and so there's this this thing happening that the majority of these Jewish people would have been in the city for Passover. Every Jewish male had to be in Jerusalem for for the celebration of Pentecost, so they probably just stayed. So about 50 days... They're kind of there hanging out the city like 10Xs in in population. And we are seeing that this is then something else happening on the day of Pentecost. Now it's similar or it's, it's, it's connected to the day of Passover, but there's a difference between the two. 
Now, Passover was the day in which the Jews celebrated being made right with God. So to understand what Passover was, it was the day in which the Jews set apart to say, we have a sacrificial lamb that takes our place. And so Passover, that's what Passover is, is this celebration of being made right with God. That was Passover. And now we see, though, that we're 50 days removed from Passover, and we get to the day of Pentecost. And what Pentecost was, it was the celebration of walking right with God. So think about this. In one instance, 50 days ago, they were celebrating that there was a lamb that took their place to be made right with God, to be atoned. And then now they received this secondary day in which they celebrated how they walked rightly with God because what Pentecost was a a remembrance of was when Moses received the Ten Commandments. And so being good Jewish boys and girls, they would begin to connect some of the dots. But Pentecost was the day in which they received the law of God. Now, let me remind us, because sometimes we miss this, sometimes it's poorly communicated, is that God's law was not given to the Jews of how to earn God's love. It was not a checklist to say, well, if you could fulfill this, you don't need to be saved because you've done it on yourself. Rather, what the law was to say, this is God's heart. This is God's intent. This is God's creation. This is how you live with God. And notice at the same time, too, you don't really do such a good job on your own. But the day of Pentecost goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read that for us because this is the day that they are celebrating. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 16, it says this. It says, on the morning of the third day, and pay attention to see if what you notice, the similarity from this and what we just read in Acts chapter 2. There was a thunder and lightning and a quick cloud over the mountain, this is Mount Sinai, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. From here, Moses goes up the mountain, he meets with God, receives the Ten Commandments, and will eventually come down with them. So think about this. They are told, go to Jerusalem, wait. So imagine the kind of the buildup of this situation. They're probably talking to one another as they're sitting, waiting. So what do you think it's going to be like? What do you think is going to happen next? He said he's coming. He says he's going to give us a gift. There's going to be a promise. What do you think is about to happen next? And then all of a sudden, there's this whoosh. Maybe, I don't know. That was a really, really bad rushing wind sound. But you get the idea. A wind comes, fire descends, and they're kind of like, oh, it's happening. And they begin to connect the dots. We've heard about this before. We're actually here today celebrating that this happened some thousands of years ago with Moses and our ancient ancestors. And it's happening again, but it's a little different now because we are involved. And they begin to see that Jesus has transformed this just in the way he transformed the Passover. You see, Jesus comes and says, I am the new Passover lamb. You no longer need to make a sacrifice on a regular or annual basis to atone for your sins. I have taken care of that. And God says, let me do you one more. You want to know how to walk right with me. You want to invite me into your daily life. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to dwell inside of you. I'm going to give you my spirit. 
So Passover, a sacrifice is needed. Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he is the new lamb of God. And here we are in Pentecost. The law is necessary. The law is necessary to understand how we walk rightly with God, but the spirit now comes and indwells and the fulfillment of that new covenant life has been established. And then something happens in the midst of this. It says the Spirit enables them to speak in other tongues because there's a mission-critical moment and opportunity before them. Remember, the city has 10 x in population. If God wanted to do something to get this church thing, to get this faith thing spread out, this would be the time to do it. In Acts chapter 2, picking up in verse 5, this is how the day of Pentecost continues. It says, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language. If you have a physical Bible, circle own language and draw a line up to verse four where it says the word tongues. They heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Wouldn't this have been the most opportune moment for the church to get started? Oh, these these Jewish people who needed to take this step from following perhaps this son of David methodology in order to following the true Yeshua Messiah, Jesus himself, from all over the entire Roman Empire. The furthest country would have been Parthia. It's the first one mentioned. It was about a 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. For reference, if you were to go from Chicago to Austin, Texas, it's about 950 miles. And let me remind you, they did not have cars. They did not have trains. They did not have airplanes. They had to either walk or take a ride like on a donkey or something. And it would take a very long time to get there. But in this moment, in the moment, the day of Pentecost, if we were to go to Acts chapter 1 verse 8, And we said last week, this is the thesis. This is what the entire book of Acts is about, is you will receive power when my spirit comes on you to be what? Witnesses to the entire world. Well, now the entire world is right there with them. They don't got to go anywhere. They just got to be bold. They just got to explain what's happening. It has come to them. What an opportunity to live out the mission of Jesus without even having to step foot out of their own city yet. You see, the best way to to explain what's happening is when all of these other nations or all these people from other nations ask this question, well, aren't these all Galileans? That's their way of saying they're not the smartest bunch. They're kind of dumb fishermen. The fact that we're hearing other languages is kind of surprising. If we heard this in just Aramaic, maybe a little Hebrew, maybe even a little bit of common Greek, that would be one thing. But now, yeah, yeah, they're they're, they're not the most educated. None of them went to school in the Greek Hellenism or any of that. This should not be happening. 
something supernatural is happening. They don't know how to speak other languages. And that's where we begin to see that the point of tongues here in Acts chapter 2 is that these are given in a supernatural way to be witnesses. We put it this way, is that these are not unknown languages being spoken, rather languages unknown to the speaker. Let me put it this way. Um, Most of you know that I, I grew up in San Diego, and so being right there on the border of Mexico, it would make sense to take what language in high school? French, exactly, yeah. So I took French for four years in high school. Because that's just what, when you're a dumb high school student, you know where I've never been before? France. (laughs) Never been to a country that speaks a French dialect. You know where I've been on several occasions? Mexico. And so the, the, Aaron talked about our high, school, high schoolers. They're going on this Mexico mission trip. It's a trip that I've taken. Uh, my time as a high school pastor, and we've kind of passed it off, and it's becoming kind of this great relationship. But it's always funny when you go on this trip because one of the things you do is you play soccer with, with uh, they call them the niños, the, the, the little kids. And they're like eight years old. They haven't hit puberty, and they just make you look the fool. Like, like they're just running around circles, and they're always talking to each other in a different language. I know that they're speaking Spanish, but I have no idea what they're saying. And so, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll run circles around you. They'll, they'll score a goal. They'll make you look silly, and they'll be joking and laughing. They'll say something. And then finally, you build up the courage to ask one of the adults who can translate for you. like, yo, what are these little punks saying? And they're like, yeah, you don't want to know. Like, you just, you just, you're just going to want to let it be. They're just making fun of you. It'd probably be better for your own pride and that you just don't know what they're saying. And in a similar situation, I knew that they were speaking Spanish, but I could not speak it myself or understand it. That's what's happening on the day of Pentecost. These are foreign languages being spoken, but they have no idea how to say these words, but it's coming out because they are called to be witnesses. And they say something interesting. Everyone listening, they're leaning in. They're saying, something is happening. Someone needs to tell us what is going on here. And so Peter steps up. You want to know what's going on? You want to know what all this is about? Well, let me tell you. He gives arguably the first Christian sermon ever, or the first sermon after Jesus that is recorded that we know of. And God picks a very interesting choice for the first person to ever give the first Christian sermon, if you will. Because Peter, not a number one draft pick. Think about it. This was the guy who said to Jesus, Jesus, I trust you. And Jesus is like, yo, okay, cool. Come walk on this water. He says, great. Steps out of the boat, takes a few steps. Jesus like, focus on me. Don't lose sight of me. And he's like, yeah, but the storm is scary. And he begins to sink. And Jesus is like, gotcha. Pulls him up by the hair, throws him in the boat. This is the same guy. And when Jesus is telling, hey, I'm about to be arrested. I'm going to be taken away. And Peter's like, but I will never leave you. I'll always got your back, Jay. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to, you know, ride till we die, homie. And Jesus is like, mm, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Not going to go well for you. This is the guy in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is given all of the hints at this point, Van Gogh's a soldier's ear off because he just can't put things together. This is the guy whose talk was always a mile wide but a dollar short. He was absolutely the wrong choice, in my opinion, to give the first Christian sermon ever. And because he was the wrong choice, he was absolutely the right choice. 
Because we said last week, God has this habit of always drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. See, here's why Peter was the perfect choice. He knows his audience. He grew up Jewish. He's in a Jewish city speaking to other Jews and Jewish converts. He would have known their upbringing, known that they were still chasing after this son of David figure, even though they should have pieced it together that Jesus was that fulfillment. And Peter, he, he knows their hearts. He knows what they are still waiting for, someone to give them political power to fulfill a cultural void in their life instead of following a suffering savior. But Peter says, all right, you wanna know what this means? Let me tell you, let me break it down for you. We don't have a whole lot of time to break down Peter's sermon because it goes from from verse 14 all the way to verse 41 and I'm long-winded as it is, but there's three parts in Peter's sermon that I wanna pull out. Number one, the first thing is that he does is he addresses something that they missed in their view of Jesus. And he begins by saying it this way in verses 14, 16, 17, and verse 21. He says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. Verse 16 says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And then he ends it by saying this in verse 21, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, let me prophesy to you. And the word prophesy isn't to tell the future. It oftentimes actually just means to tell the truth. And the truth that they missed, Peter says, is this idea of judgment. He says, just because you're Jewish, it doesn't absolve you from judgment of God. Just because you converted or just because you grew up ethnically in a Jewish household, it doesn't mean you've got some secret end around. It doesn't mean you've got some secret passage away from the judgment of God that everyone will experience the judgment of God no matter who you are. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've been through, whether you're a Jew or a convert, whether you're still a Gentile, male, female, slave, free, young, old, everyone will face the judgment of God. There are no exceptions. And the only way out of it is to do one thing. That is to call on the name of the Lord. It is not based on your actions. It is not based on your well-being. It is not based on your comfort. The only thing that will save you from the judgment of God is calling on that same God to be your savior. So Peter starts there and he says, so let me tell you, this is the second part, of how Jesus kind of acts this out and lives this to fulfill this in the gospel message. In 22 and 24, Peter continues. So again, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Verse 24 says, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter says that that Jesus guy, you guys saw him walk around. A lot of you are aware of the things he did, not just what he taught, but the miracles he performed. Yes, he was a man, but he was also the promise of God. He was plan A from the beginning, that he was competent He was capable to handle our sin. And because of God's great love for us, he sent Jesus, sent himself, the son of God, to be a man. 
that he who knew no sin became sin, so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord might become the righteousness of God. But he says to the crowd, he says, but there's something in the way. There's something in your hearts keeping you from believing this that we need to kind of work through. Let me explain to you and get this cultural thing, this cultural hurdle out of your heart so you can follow Jesus. And he says this, if we pick up in verses 29, 30, and 36, he says, so fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. This is his way of saying, the guy you're trying to follow, he dead. You can go visit his tomb if you want. He's still in there. And then he says in verse 30, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would, one, uh, his, would place one of his descendants on his throne. And then verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So you guys are stuck on this David character, this, this son of David to come. David died. He couldn't even prove it. David couldn't even uh, overcome the, the power of sin and death. He's still dead. He's still in his grave. You're waiting for this David guy. But if David was here today, he would tell you, stop looking to me. Follow Jesus. He is that son of David. He is that fulfillment. He is that Lord. He is that Savior. But you, crowd, you're caught in this hurdle. Because you don't want a suffering servant. What you want is someone to make your life comfortable. What you want is someone to puff up politically, give you, give you health, give you perhaps wealth, just kind of take over things. That's why you're ignoring Jesus. It's because he's not the Messiah that you wanted. But Peter's message is clear. There was a man who defeated death. And we are witnesses of that death. He says that most of you know he says, a lot of you were here on that Passover day, leading up to that Passover day. When Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, humbly on a donkey, you were waving palm fronds in the air, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, you were there. And a lot of you were also there. When Pilate stood him before you and said, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? Give us Barabbas, you shouted. Well, what should I do with Jesus? You were there. You helped shout, crucify, crucify. And you've been in the city ever since. And for the last 40 days after he rose from the grave and he taught about the kingdom of, of God and showed you the wounds and the scars that it was him, you should be shouting, Yeshua, Messiah, Hamashiach. But you're not. Because there's a hurdle in your heart because he's not the savior that you wanted, albeit he is the savior you need. Peter's essentially saying to him, why are you still living with that old thinking? Why are you still holding on to the old way, that old heart? It's interesting though, because I think for a lot of us, this Pentecost sermon is, is kind of hard to get. Majority of us are not Jews. A lot of us have already probably heard or understood the gospel. So that connection is a little bit dated for us, if you will. So it got me thinking. If Pentecost happened today, what might Peter's sermon to us sound like? What would, what would Peter say to us in the power filled with the Holy Spirit if Pentecost happened today? 
I think it might sound something like this, and this is a message for everyone, myself included. Peter might say something like, well, many of you know the truth about Jesus, and praise God for that. You consider yourself a Christian, you've accepted the gospel, but I ask you today, my fellow American Christian, is your faith moving you to action? And what I mean by it is this. Many of us are quick to see the fallen world in which we live in. A lot of us are quick to see how we fall short of the glory of God and perhaps even quicker to see how people fall short on us. But my question is this. Do we fall short on a faith that actually moves us? Or are we cool just to sit here and say that conviction is good enough? That conviction is greater than action. Do we get this high of conviction but let our lives be void of action and say, that's good enough, that's close enough. My fellow American Christian, think of though who Jesus was and what he accomplished. God became man, he lived a perfect life, he proved it through miracles, he died a sinner's death, he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death for entirety, that anyone who calls on that name will be saved and the spirit of God will dwell inside of them. That because God was convicted about the state of our lives and the state of the world, he did something about it. But what if God just rested in his conviction? Well, I know that sin has separated my creation. I know that sin has taken a hold of it, the world in which I created. I feel kind of sad about it. I feel kind of bad. What if he didn't actually lead him to the sending of his son to die on the cross for that brokenness? Where would that leave each and every one of us destined for eternity? But God's conviction led him to action to send his son Jesus who now lives inside anyone who believes transforms us, makes us new creations as the great apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and I've given you the ministry of reconciliation. So fellow American Christian, where would you say you find yourself reconciling in life the most? Trying to live as that new creation or holding on to that old way of life as tight as you can? Because our cultural hurdle is this that our society wants a good word, but rarely a good work. Our society says it's, it's, it's good enough just to have that good word, to talk about conviction, to post about it, to say that it breaks your heart, to have things that stir you up, but not actually do anything with it. We enjoy rhetoric far more than we enjoy righteousness. We might say things like, well, I'm saved. Jesus has come into my life and therefore I love my neighbor as myself, but do I actually do anything with it? Well, I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God, but Jesus took my sins seriously, therefore I don't have to. My concern, fellow American Christian, is that culture is a sly temptress. It tells you to curate anything but the real you. Curate your image, but not your heart. Work on the facade on the outside, but you don't actually have to do any changing. It's okay to be convicted. You don't have to be led to action because conviction is good enough. My fellow American Christian, do we really think that Jesus rose from the grave for us to fall short in action at conviction? We're missing a line here. And the line that we're missing is not another good word. It's a, somewhat of a, a figurative, a literal line. It's not that conviction is greater than action. It's that conviction needs to lead us to action. 
That in our faith and in the world around us, in the people and the relationships in our community, conviction should always lead us to the point of action. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accept this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They were cut to the heart. What do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. This is a unit of thought here. The word repent, it means to do a 180, to go through a, a transformation. It's the Greek word metanoia, where we get the word metamorphosis. Think about a butterfly that's a caterpillar first. So imagine you're just a dumb little caterpillar. You live on trees or on the ground, and what do you do? You just inch along in life, looking for leaves, blah, 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 making holes in stuff, hoping that a second grader doesn't use you as a fun foot toy during PE. You get what I'm saying. And then one day you go to sleep, and it's a super long sleep, kind of like a coma, and you wake up the next time, and you were this little fuzzy little thing that's kind of meaningless and pointless, and all of a sudden you've got wings. You're like, whoop, 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 whoop. What are these? What am, I, what, am I, what am I supposed to do? But in that moment, you know that you have been transformed into something new, into something better, something with much more purpose and clarity and vision for your life. It would be foolish of you to say, even though I've got wings, I'm going to go back to eating holes in leaves. I got wings. I've got freedom, I can fly, I can live differently. And I don't know if, if butterflies talk to caterpillars, but I like to imagine that they do because I've seen a bug's life. I bet every butterfly would tell every caterpillar they see, just wait. Just wait till you experience this transformation too. It is coming, have faith. This, this transformation, it is waiting for you. This metanoia, it is coming for you. And Peter says, repent and be baptized, to be immersed. It was the process in which they took something that was white and they would dye it a different color. So that when you take it out of the water, it is completely changed. What do you do when you're cut to the heart? What do you do when you hear the message of Jesus? What do you do? When the Holy Spirit begins to transform your life, you live that transformed life. You don't hold on to the old way of thinking. You release the things that culture says will give you meaning and power and purpose. You now live out that transformed life. That is what they were witnesses of, and that's what we are called to be witnesses today. 
Because that's what the church is called to be. The church is called to be this, transform people, living transformed lives, transforming the world. If you wanna know why are we here? Why do we do this? It isn't for us to check a few boxes. We don't hold services every single week and encourage you to get in groups or classes or do all the things so that you can check a few boxes and feel good about yourself. We do this because we are trying to transform people into the image and likeness of Christ. We are trying to lead you and teach you how to live a transformed life. Why? Because the rest of the world, we need to be witnesses of that transformation. That is the mission. That is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what we're called to do. The Spirit of God lives inside of us, not to make our lives necessarily easier, but to give us a mission above and beyond ourselves to live out that transformed life. Let me close with this. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Jesus didn't come to make rule breakers into rule followers. He came to give you freedom by his spirit. He didn't come to contribute to your life plan, but to help take over your life for his glory. He came not to help you manage your sin, but to sin, to slay that sinful nature so that you can live out that transformed life. If you have heard the gospel and if you have received that gospel, you are a new creation. You are transformed. And living a transformed life means we never stop short of conviction, but it always leads to action. It's not complicated. It's simple. But we must be consistent. Because if we are faithful, God will be fruitful in our life and in the world around us. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we lift you up in you and you alone. You are so good to us. You moved in a way some 2,000 years ago, and, and even though it might not look the same externally, it certainly is internally. Transform us by your goodness. Transform us by your grace. May that good gospel message always be a source of man. Not just God, how do we love you better, but how do we love the world around us better? How do we follow you with such tenacity? How do we live a transformed life that gives credence to you are our Lord, you are Messiah. Lord, move in us. Give us attentiveness to your spirit so that glory can be yours. Make us witnesses. Make us martus for your grace and your message. It's your name that we pray. Amen.